0: Yeah, and now I will read out the scripture. To be honest, I'm a bit nervous, so I hope um, <laughs> it's going to be okay. It's um, in 2 Kings uh, 5, verses 1 to 19, and you will be able to read it with me. Um, or you can just read it in your own Bible. That's also really cool. Okay. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aaron. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master um, and told him that the girf- what the girl from I- Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aaron replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took the- to the king of Israel said, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel had read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman... Went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, "Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed." But Naaman went away angry and said, "I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, to cure me of my leprosy. Are not banner and Fafa the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel?" couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the men of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. I will not, said Naaman. Please let me... Oh, if you will not, said Naaman, sorry. Please let me, your servant, be given... Um, as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord but may the Lord forgive you your servant for this one thing when my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also when I bow down in the temple of Rimen may the Lord forgive your servant for this go in peace Elisha said this is the word of the Lord
1: All right, I'm on, yes, check, there we go. Wow, There's a lot more people than last time I was here. It's good to see more faces. Uh, and I wanna do a special welcome to those who are watching live, although last I checked, the live stream was not working again. So uh, those of you who are watching this later on this week, hopefully, we'll see. Um, today we're continuing in our series, Humans of the Bible, if you didn't notice. And if you didn't guess, we're looking at Naaman, Although we could have could have been any of the other characters uh, in the text we read today, but uh, we're going with Naaman, the more prominent one. And we read through a lot of text there. Uh, special thank you to Johanna for pushing through it. I thought it was really good. And. I wanted to kind of read through the whole story because we need to have the whole story in mind if we're going to be looking at Naaman, the human, and looking at what he has to tell us, what we can learn from him, as we've always been pointing out through this series that we're looking at humans of the Bible and their relationship to God and how God works. And I think in this, especially here in this story, we're going to see... Some images of the gospel itself, and so it's important to unpack uh, the whole story, although it's not actually there's a little, it goes a little bit further than that, but that's pretty much the gist of the story. And I want to walk through the story again, taking a closer look at Naaman, especially in context with what it tells us about the gospel even today. But before we do, I want to point you to something else, a little bit different direction. Uh, that I believe will help make this story even more significant, or at least it did for me uh, when I kind of read through this. Actually, I didn't intend on adding this, but it came up in my daily reading, actually. Uh, So that's a sign from God, I guess. And um, what I want to point you to is something that Jesus says, because I don't know if you know this, but Jesus actually mentions uh, Naaman in the New Testament in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And my hope in kind of pointing you to this is that it would maybe perk your interest a little bit more uh, as we go through the text and what it kind of has to say to us. So here's a little bit of the backstory that I want to just point to you on what Jesus, why and when Jesus came. Mentions Naaman. So Jesus is in his hometown. He's gone back to Nazareth. He's been traveling, uh, doing all these amazing things. He goes to his hometown and actually isn't doing any miracles there, Uh, but he goes up and he reads a text from Isaiah, which is actually a prophecy about himself. And almost like this, uh, to me, it's like a mic drop moment. He kind of goes, and this has now been fulfilled. And it's just really powerful. And the people are amazed. They're like really taken back because it was so powerful. Uh, I mean, Jesus reading words about himself, I mean, just the uh, anointing that would have been probably experienced and felt in that room would have been a bit intense, I would imagine. They felt that. They saw that, whoa, this, something's going on here. Uh, but they're also immediately skeptical because they know him and they say, wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter's son? Uh, he's nothing special. Who's this guy? And, and they're immediately kind of start to be really offended almost. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking and what they're saying, tells them That a prophet is never respected, never kind of taken in in his own hometown. And then he gives these two examples from the Old Testament that seem a bit out of place at first. And one of the examples is actually from Elijah, which we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, when he saves a widow and her son, um, pointing out that they are not Israelites and God still saves them. And the other example he gives is this one of Naaman. And I'll read what he says about it in Luke four twenty-seven. He says, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And now as soon as Jesus finishes saying this, after he gives these two examples, they, the people there in his hometown, people he grew up with, they immediately become indignant with anger and rage. And they actually band together. And they drag Jesus to the top of a cliff, intending to throw him off to his death. It's like, whoa, where did that come from when you're reading through? It really kind of takes you back. Now Jesus, if you miraculously kind of, it says he just walked through them and they didn't see him. Uh, he gets out of there and uh, is unnoticed So he doesn't die from being thrown off a cliff, if you didn't know. And the question is, though, when I read this, when especially looking at Naaman's story, what is it about this story that filled them with such anger and hate to the point that they would want to murder Jesus right there on the spot? Like, what? Like, just so filled with rage. What could be so offensive that it would drive them to murder? What was offensive here? And so as we go through the story of Naaman, I want to look at that from that point of view. And not just in what offended them, which we'll look at at the end, but a lot of the things that are offensive in Naaman's story and what he himself is offended by. So let's go through it. Who is Naaman? Who is this guy? Some of you may have never even heard of him before today. Some of you maybe did. I don't know. But let's read through verse 1 again. It kind of gives us the gist of who he is as a person. So, now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Which is an interesting point, that the Lord, that's big L, so the Lord is the one who put him in the position he's in, and through him worked a victory for uh, Aram. So, and he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So this is a man of authority, of power, of favor, a valiant man, a valiant soldier. Not to mention he's really stinking rich. Uh, just to give you an idea, the, it talks about the he took gold, silver, and changes of clothes, all, of very, all were very valuable. But the gold alone that he brings with him to Elijah is more than the annual workers, so one year's uh, salary for 600 laborers. So like more than most average people could make in several lifetimes and this wasn't all of his gold this was just the gold he had to spare to to buy his way to his healing is what he was maybe thinking so who is this guy he's the kind of guy that everyone really kind of hopes to become on some level maybe think well maybe not me i don't want to be that but on some level maybe it's money maybe it's the power maybe it's the success maybe it's influence over other people or authority or maybe it's just being really well liked he was really well-liked. Even his sl- the slave in his house is concerned for his well-being. He's liked in his household. He's loved by the people he works with. Even though this is the story of a pagan man, meaning he wasn't an Israelite, which Jesus also points out when he tells the story, who lived thousands of years ago, the similarities to our modern society, our, our modern understanding, is there's a lot of unmistakable similarities that we need to address or think about as we go through his story, his narrative. No matter who you are in this world right now, this desire to be successful, to be respected, to ha- maybe to have authority, to have influence, whatever that might look like for you in whatever field you're in, whether it's academic or professional, it's inherent in our human nature. It's a part of us. It's human nature to desire security, whether it's through money or some other means or success or approval or adoration from others. That's why social media is so addictive. And here's a guy who's at the top in a lot of ways, who really has it all in that respect. He's respected. He's the best of the best. He's the peak of our aspirations in this world. And what this world in itself is, holds high and values as success. But, just like, it's, it feels like a, a Greek tragedy. He's, he seems to be a good guy. Everything seems to be going for him. He, there's nothing really wrong with him inherently, and yet he has one fatal flaw. He's got the one thing that will destroy him, and it's a biggie. He has leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Old Testament is, can mean several different things, but it's always some kind of skin disease, usually a horrible one, a mutilating one or a mutating one that's debilitating and unsightly. And leprosy is also often equated, especially in the Old Testament, with sin. It's often equated with sin in the Bible. Because sin, or leprosy rather, is an outward representation of what sin does to us on the inside. Slowly, slowly debilitating us, crippling us, breaking us down as it kills us on the inside. And leprosy was an outward expression of this. Naaman, though he's a man of high position, of great means, is plagued with both a sinful heart on the inside, as we'll see, and actually has actual leprosy. So he has it on both sides, and his story is going to show us how God's plan of salvation works, and how that plan, especially when we talk about it in the sense of the gospel itself, can offend. It can disorient us, can go against our, our human nature, it can humble us, and no matter who we are or when we are living in history, this is a truth. Naaman is going to learn it is only by God's grace. It is only by God's grace. Nothing earned, nothing deserved that he can find his physical healing and also be humbled and see his heart be changed and transformed. Now to begin, to start with Naaman's transformation, he didn't even know that there was a hope available. He was completely clueless. He was in the dark about what was there. It's a young girl, a slave girl in his house, likely orphaned and taken captive out of Israel by Naaman himself or certainly through his actions as he's like a general of sorts in the army. So it would have been through his actions uh, that she would have been orphaned and taken captive to live a life as a slave. And it's she, it's through her that this, even this concept of hope is first presented to Naaman. She says in verse three, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And there's almost, it's almost a, a grace and a love in her voice in the way that she's wanting him to be saved. And here I think God is already preparing a way for, to see Naaman's heart be changed. Because it's not through some great healer Right? It's not through the best doctors, it's not through the best of the best professionals, it's not through a king, it's not through a wise man, it's not even through a friend. It's through a slave that God chooses to present the hope of healing to Naaman, to begin to draw him to that hope to be changed. He was completely in the dark, had no idea about who God was or who this God is and what he was about and about the prophet Elijah All of his worldly wisdom, his authority, his power brought him no closer to being healed. He had to first hear about it, to hear about the hope that was even available to him, which we kind of talked about when we looked at Peter, if you remember, that even Peter, the rock of the church, right, still had to first, there was a moment when he heard about Jesus from his brother. And God loves to use the foolish things of this world, to shame the wise and to humble the wise of the world. This is why it can be so hard and so offensive often for those who are worldly successful to see that they need Christ just as much as everyone else. Now, Naaman had an advantage when it comes to his leprosy. He knew he had leprosy. It was on the outside. He was aware that he had leprosy but he didn't know that he also had a sinful heart he had a lot of pride especially and yet god is going to heal them both he's going to heal his physical skin but he also is going to heal him on the inside give him a new and changed perspective a changed heart how many today how many today don't have that advantage don't even know that they have a leprous heart on the inside that they have a sinful heart that they need healing of, they need to be changed from. They're so blinded by maybe their success or their security or their money that they don't even know that they need to be healed and they're actually headed for destruction. And they're in a desperate, desperate need of Christ. God uses the lowly slave to open Naaman's eyes. And just, I mean, just so you know, women at that time were kind of, it was not a good time for women. It was not a good time to be young, and it was not a good time to be a slave, and she was all of those. I mean, in a hierarchy system, she would have been just above the animals. So she's literally at the bottom of the pole, and God uses her to speak to this great man. We see this all the time in the Bible. I could give loads of examples. With Peter again, we see an uneducated fisherman becoming the rock of the church on which God is going to build a foundation that's going to change the world. We can think of a young boy who, with a slingshot, takes down a giant. That's David, if you didn't know. Or we can think of the people who are in Nazareth hearing Jesus speak this great prophecy about himself and think, who is this? That's the carpenter's son. Not seeing that he is the one that was sent to save the world. God loves to use the lowly. And the world will blind us with its success and its allures of security, this idea of security. It'll blind us to the truth that God is not impressed with those things. He's not impressed with all of the things the world has to offer, no matter how great we become in that arena. And he rarely uses those things for his greatest works. Not that he doesn't at all, but his greatest works have often and almost always been through the humble. At any rate, getting back to the story, Naaman doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite get what God's trying to do. He's not humbled yet uh, simply by hearing about the hope he has through a slave girl. And the first thing he does is he goes to his king, would have been his superior, uh, maybe a practical way to go about it, uh, who then sends him to the king of Israel, uh, who gives a... Uh, his response is kind of full of, I would call it a hidden wisdom because I don't think he's intending to be uh, particularly wise. It's hard to say. Um, he seems more fearful in his response. And yet he says, "I am I God? Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? And he's saying, that's, that's not my job. You're going to the wrong person. I don't know how to, I'm not, I'm not the right guy for that. And worldly wisdom tells us Hey, you need to always go to the professionals first, okay? Here's your faith, here's religion, here's, here's what you believe, but go to the professionals for everything that, you know, that's serious with our problems. And I'm not saying that professionals are a bad thing to do. I'm, I'm de- this isn't a church where we say, don't go to doctors. That's, that's silly. Oh, if you're sick, you can go to a doctor. That's not what we're saying. We want, there's nothing wrong with professionals, but as an example, let's say a psychologist a psychologist can, can maybe help you decipher what's wrong with you, maybe even paint a picture of what's going on on the inside, but they can never give you the tools to have the power to forgive your father for hurting you, to forgive a friend who betrayed you, to love those who've hurt you. They can't do that. They cannot offer that. And they should, in wisdom, say what the king said, am I God? God. I can't do that. I can't give you the strength to forgive people. I can tell you maybe that you need to or that here's here's an example of what your problem might be, but they can't give you the tools to change it. Only God, only God can heal and restore hearts, free us from our sinful desires and make us into new creatures in Christ. Only God can do that. No, eventually Naaman is going to find his way to Elijah, who, it's actually Elijah, right, who calls to the king, it's like, hey, don't worry, don't, you know, he's, because the king's like ripping his clothes, he's like freaking out, thinking there's like war about to start, and he's like, don't, no, he, he just wants to be healed, send him to me, and eventually Naaman finds his way there, and he shows up big, he shows up in a big way, he's got this whole like, you know, entourage with him, and uh, in verse 9, it says, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. So he shows up with all of his stuff, all of his things, all of his people with him. And he's thinking, surely the man of God, he's going to come out. He's going to do something really awesome. It's going to be some big show, and then I'm going to be healed. It's going to be great. I mean, look, look at this. When he sees all this, he's probably going to come out with a red carpet. And later in verse 11, he says that he would maybe just wave his hand like some, like, you know, magic trick but in verse 10, what does Elijah do? He sends out, Elijah sent a messenger to say to him. So already, what? He doesn't even, he doesn't even get off his rocking chair. He's just like, yeah, just go tell him. And he, what does he tell him? He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, Naaman doesn't even seem to hear that part. He doesn't hear, you will be cleansed. Just do this little thing and you're gonna be healed. Everything's, you're gonna be completely restored. That's good news. That's hope. But he just sees this rejection that, because, I mean, look who he is. I mean, who's Elijah to not come out to me? Does he not know who I am? And in his response, we're going to see three common offenses of the gospel three common offenses, things that he's offended here and that people are still often offended. By today. Let's read verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. So the first offense we see with Naaman's response is the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. Where's the theatrics? Where's the grand gesture? He was like, probably, maybe he even had heard about Elijah, who was, uh, came before Elijah, and he's like, you know, raining fire down and stuff. I mean, he was like, this is what I'm expecting, man. I want some, like, powerful healing. I don't want to go wash in some dirty river. Many religions throughout history and, and today, including many modern philosophies, it's often through elaborate or extensive rituals that we seek to reach our desired result whether it's enlightenment oneness inner peace these cannot simply be given out they must be sought after through whether it's rituals or meditations or ceremonies and it really comes down to a type different kinds of mysticism and and a lot of times christianity overlaps with this and people lean in that direction with christianity Christianity isn't about mysticism. It's not about rituals. The real Christianity, the gospel truth, is that there is no ritual, there's no theatrics needed on our part. It is only through simple faith in Christ, washed in the blood of Christ, that we are saved. As we sang today, it's actually a perfect song. Being washed in the fountain, our guilt removed, just as... Naaman needed to simply wash in the river. We simply need to wash in the blood of Christ. The real theatrics took place already on the cross so that we can simply believe. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's as simple as jumping in a river. Which, of course, was not about the action of jumping in the river itself, but the faith required for him to do it. Because for him to do it, he had to humble himself a lot, and he had to believe that it would happen. He had to have the faith that what Elijah said was true. But this was too simple. This was too easy. And I'm reminded of of Jesus' words when he said, a wicked generation looks for a sign, looks for something big, for some big grand gesture, some writing on the wall. Modern society says, prove it to me. Show me with something grand, and then I might believe. Give me a sign. But what's grander than the God of the universe? The God of the universe, creator of all things, humbling himself into humanity, coming down, living amongst us, being tempted like we are, suffering a horrible, painful death, and then rising again to new life. What's more grand than that? What's more miraculous than that? So that all we have to do is simply believe, and then we can be saved, just believing on him as our Lord, that what he did was enough And if that's not enough, it's not going to change your mind to see anything else. No grand spectacle will change your mind or your heart either if that's not enough. It's made so simple so that anyone can accept it. It's made so simple so that anyone can accept it. But you cannot pass through the door of salvation without faith, you have to believe. Eventually, name and will, right? He's going to go down there. He has to believe. I believe this. And without abandoning your pride. That even though it's simple, it's not about me. It's, I, it's not about anything I can do. It's simple. The first offense of the gospel is its simplicity. That it's been made easy for all to come to the truth. The second offense is the costlessness of the gospel. The costlessness. It's freedom. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him. So again, we see God using servants, using the lowly to speak to the great. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more? How much more than When he tells you, wash and be cleansed. They don't get it. They're like, what's gonna, just do it, man. Just get in the water. Like, let's go back. Maybe you're healed, maybe you're not, but I don't understand why you wouldn't get in there. The thing is, is Naaman was a great man of great authority, of great power, and a lot of pride. He would have gladly given all the gold and silver and clothes that he brought for his healing. Without question, he would have been happy to do that. And he would have been happy to go on some great quest, to climb some high mountain, to travel to some low valley, to seek after the one ring to rule them all and bring it back to Mordor, whatever it might have been, he would have been happy to do something grand because he was strong. He could have done it. He had the money. He had the means. He had the strength. But here's the thing. He thinks to himself, if I can be healed by simply washing in this river, I'm in no way any different to anyone else. Anybody can do that. Any idiot can to get, go get wet in the water. And that's what's so offensive in the gospel, in its costlessness. Elijah paid no, no attention to his great wealth and everything that he had brought. And instead, he offers him healing freely. And instead of being like, oh, great, I can take my gold home with me, he's offended. Why is he offended? The great offense of the, of the gospel today, this is the offense, that there is no difference. There's no difference between you, or you, or you, or you, or any of you, and any other sinner. There's no difference. There's no difference when it comes to our salvation. As they say, the ground is level at the cross. And that's offensive. And if you just plant your humanity a little bit, you know it's like, oof, what? No difference. <laughs> there's some difference. I mean, I'm better than some people for sure. Surely I can think of some people that I'm better at, or better at this than they are. There's no difference. No difference. No other religion claims that there's no difference at all between you if you live a life of sin or you work really hard to be a good person your whole life, in the end, you're both in the exact same need of salvation through the exact same washing of the blood of Christ. There's no difference between you. (laughs) And I think of the prodigal son, which I'm just thinking of that right now. It's not in my notes, but a prodigal son is really... That's a horrible name for it. It's really the story of the two sons, right? And the end, we find that it's actually the one who stayed there and did everything right who doesn't enter into the kingdom, who doesn't go into the banquet because there's, he didn't get it that there's no difference between him and the prodigal son. The one who went away and, and squandered all of his, his uh, inheritance and the one who stayed there and worked hard all of his days working well for his father, there's no difference between them. They both need the same grace of the father. And that's offensive. And it's led to one of the greatest misunderstandings of scripture, the misunderstandings of the Bible and a, a very common false doctrine that's often preached. Because this, this is such a truth that goes, again, it goes against our human nature and it's led to what we call moralism. Moralism, that the the gospel is really just about being a good person. And a lot of just modern people who even lean maybe away, but on the edge of Christianity, be like, well, if if you just try hard, if you just try to be a good person, then, you know, God will see that. God will see that, and then that'll be enough. And we can usually jump on that, because what does that really mean? Well, it means that when I get to heaven... To some, maybe small degree, I, I, maybe I would, wouldn't admit it's a big thing, but uh, to some small degree, I deserve to be there. To some small degree, I deserve, I've earned it to be here. i, I worked really hard. Look at everything I did. And you're telling me there's no difference between me and the guy who just got saved yesterday? Yeah, because that's what the real gospel says. You think that you might deserve to be there, but the real gospel says no, you don't. You don't deserve to be there. You'll never deserve to be there. You'll never deserve to go to heaven. You'll never be able to do enough. You'll never be good enough. And that, when accepted as salvation, is the most freeing truth of the gospel there is. I'm glad there's no difference. I'm glad it's free. Because the real gospel says actually salvation costs everything. And no matter who you are or what you've done or what you've accomplished, how good you've lived or not lived or whatever you've done, you can never do anything to pay that price. So someone had to pay it for you. That's the truth of the gospel. And this is why often it is those who are poor, physically the poor often, and those also who are just beaten down by life, those who are in low positions we see here with the the servants, right? The ones who go to him, they get it. They get what's what, what's really being offered, and it's often the losers of the world who get salvation e- more easily. They get it quicker, because anybody who's really ever been in a low position knows that the reality is. And this is, may shock some of you. The reality is that there's actually no difference between all of us, because the lowly know that those who are successful are really there because they're lucky. Wait a minute, what? No, I've earned where I am. Maybe, but you didn't get to choose the family you were born into. You didn't get to choose what part of the world you were were born into. You didn't get to choose the family you had, the opportunities you were given, the advantages that you had at your disposal. That was all God's grace. It was luck by the world's view, grace by a biblical understanding. And the poor know that. Those who are in low positions know that. And when you think that everything you have is yours because you earned it, you are forgetting about all those graces that God showed you along the way that allowed you to obtain the things you've obtained. And you're going to have a hard time accepting this truth. Of the gospel that says you can do nothing that you can earn nothing that your everything you've done is worth nothing ultimately in regards to granting you any further towards god and salvation and you're going to have a hard time accepting the gift freely as it's given our human nature knows though it's because our human nature knows it's not right that salvation it would be free it should cost something and therefore in order for us to accept the gift of salvation and in its freedom, we must also know that it was Jesus who did the grand gesture, who went to the highest height, who went down into the lowest depths, facing and defeating death itself, so that through him, we may simply freely accept our salvation through him. As we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, he washed it white as snow. So the second offense is that we are all made equal and offered the same free gift. We're all made equal, offered the same free gift. And the third offense is the exclusivity of the gospel the exclusivity. In verse 12 it says, Are not the rivers of Damascus, I'm not saying the names of them because I don't know how to pronounce them, Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. What is he saying? If it's really that simple, and if it's really this free, what difference does it matter what river I go to? What difference does it make? If all I need to do is have faith, what difference does it make if I have faith in, in this or that or some version of Jesus or the things that I like but I, and leave out the things I don't like? Well, what does it really matter? It's all free. It's all simple. If, what's the matter of which direction I'm pointing, which river I wash in, which Savior I choose to believe in? Why would this one be the only way? Why does it have to be the Jordan River? Why does it have to be Jesus? This is as offensive today as it would have been for him back then. Because in his day, all countries had their own gods. And it was just normal. Many of them had many gods. And if every country has its own god, and what's the difference? What, which river I wash in? Why can't you just say, go wash in a river? Why would Jesus be the only way? But see, the reality is when we think this way, we're missing kind of the bigger picture because it's exclusive because it's simple and free. And if it's not exclusive, if it's not through Christ alone, then it can no longer be simple and it can no longer be free. The common opposition say there are many paths to God. There are many paths to God. It all, it's all the same thing. It, all, it kind of is leading the same way. And I think anybody who's kind of seeking something, some version of God, they're going they can find it. They can find God. Because God's going to see that they they want to find Him. Or maybe it's going to be through an ordeal that they go through or something that they face that's going to bring them to an understanding of God. Or maybe just trying to be a good person, you know, trying to be do right. Just, you know, don't, don't be a horrible person. Maybe we can just start there and then, you know, you can find some version of God. Those who seek to live, moral or whatever it might be, no matter their beliefs, can find some idea of God. And of course, the first thing to say about that is that if that's the way that you go, then it means that it's no longer simple and it's no longer free already. Because only those who work at it, who have the right experiences or have the right kind of ability to seek God in whatever form that is or whatever way or whatever they call it is are only ones that would even be able to find him and the second thing is is it actually becomes exclusive again it becomes exclusive because what about the people see the 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 real gospel says that we're all right the, the ground is level at the cross But all of these understandings kind of lead to this idea away from, hey, if you come to Christ at the end of your days and your heart has been changed and you really confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you're just as saved as the one who grew up in church and lived their whole life for God. You're just as saved. That's the real gospel where all these other views, it's only those who have the right circumstances, the right situations, the right experiences, and the right seeking or live the right way that are able to find some version of God, even if it's all the same thing. The gospel says even if you come to the truth at the end, it's the same truth. It doesn't matter what you've done because you couldn't have done anything to earn it anyway. And if you say, well, that's not fair. I don't like that. Well, that's, that's the prodigal son's brother syndrome. That's moralism. And it's normal to get a little bit offended by it, but it's something we need to pray that God removes. That we would wish that all would come to a knowledge of the truth, whether it's the very last breath they take or when they're very young. The good news of Jesus Christ is offensive because it goes against our human nature. But when we grasp in our hearts, and in our heads, right? We don't want it. To, not just a heart thing. It's a heart and head thing. We want to know the truth. It changes everything about us. It changes everything about us. So finally, Naaman he goes. He washes in the Jordan, and as he rises up uh, that seventh time, he's not just—he's not—he's he's not just healed. He's completely restored. His skin is like that of a young boy. I mean, I'm only 33, but I'm like already, man. Oof, my skin's already looking different than it did like 10 years ago. And he was like a middle-aged man, most likely, being a general already, and in a high position. He would have been a bit older, and now he's like young again. Probably really freaked people out when he came home. Like, whoa, where did you go? I want to go to that place. You look great, man. He's completely restored. But more than that, more than just physically restored, we see evidence that his heart has been changed. His understanding, his perspective has been altered. He, in verse 15, he's gone back to Elijah right after, of course. He's like, Now I know, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. So he tries to uh, give him some money at, in the end anyway. Now he knows. It wasn't a king, it wasn't any professional, it wasn't a prophet. It was God who healed him. God is the one who healed him. It wasn't the river. He wasn't like, whoa, this river is like magic. I'm taking some water home. He knows it was God. His heart has changed. His skin is restored. His heart has changed. And his perspective is altered. He tries to bless the prophet, which it would have been not wrong for him to take that money. But what Elijah is is doing, because he doesn't take the money, what he's doing is he he doesn't want Naaman to misunderstand what just happened. He needed to understand, and we need to understand, that God saves and heals who God wishes to save and heal. And no amount of money or power or success or influence or good deeds or anything is going to sway God's decisions. And this was, in fact, when Jesus mentioned the story in Luke. This is why they wanted to kill him. See, they were Israelites, and Jesus was saying, The good news from that prophecy I just read, that's not just for you guys. God even healed people in the Old Testament that weren't Israelites. They thought they were special simply because they were Israelites. And Jesus was pointing out that God's salvation is for anyone who God chooses to save. You're not born into it. You can't earn it, and you'll never deserve it. Salvation is always freely given and freely received by grace alone, through Christ alone, simply believing in him, no matter who you are or where you come from. And this is what the example of Naaman is saying to us, and what is offensive in it. But Naaman gets it, and as he gets it, he knows that this truth isn't just going to, it it isn't just what healed him, it isn't just what changed his heart, but it's going to change the rest of his life. In verse 17 through 19, I'll just he, he talks about he's going to bring dirt. He said, "Can I bring some dirt with me?" Which is weird. Why do you want to bring dirt? But it's actually old in the Old Testament uh, in the law there was there was a law or a provision for bringing dirt to make temporary kind of uh, altars to be able to make sacrifices. so what he's doing, he's not doing it as a for something ritualistic. He's doing it as a symbol of for the truth that he's received right? Because he knew that after that day, and he talks about it, he said, I want you to forgive me for this thing. And what he's talking about is uh, as kind of being right under the king. When the king went into worship, he would have kind of had to like kneel down so that the king could use him as a rest uh, as the king kneeled down. And he's like, I'm going to have to kneel down. I'm going to be kneeling down before this other god, but I want you to know, and I want everyone to know, that it's not who I worship. So I want to bring this dirt with me when I go back so that I can make an altar to this God, to the true God of Israel so that everyone knows. And what he's saying here is that hey, I'm, gonna, I'm going back into my workplace and the people I work with aren't going to believe what I believe and it's going it's to be challenging. I'm going to have to do some things that I don't, I'm not, maybe a little questionable but I want, I want you to know and I want everyone to know that this is where my heart is. And he tells us, it reminds us that there's two kind of things we have to kind of avoid or be careful about when we're, have that changed heart when we know Christ. When we go back into the world, we can't do the two kind of things that we want to lean to. Which is one, okay, now I just want to hang out with Christians. I just want to be around Christians. I want to be around people who just think the way I do. And I just I'm gonna I'll go to work. I'll do what I have to. And then I'm gonna just be around, surround myself with Christians. Or maybe I'll quit that job, whatever it is. I just want to surround myself with people who think like I do. And then the other thing, the other side of that is to say, okay, well I'm gonna go to church on Sunday. Uh, and then I'm going to go to work and just be really quiet and make sure that nobody knows what I really believe so I don't have to have, deal with any controversy or problems or issues. I just want to be quiet, do my thing, and then move on. And we see him kind of doing both. He's saying, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do what I have to do. That's my duty. And we know that God's the one who put him in that position, right? It was through it was God uh, who gave the victory through him. Uh, was, so we know he's in that position for a reason. He knows it, and yet he wants to make sure everyone else knows what I believe. Christ changes us when we know him. He changes us. He transforms us from the inside, the outside, our mind, the way we think. This is the reality of the gospel. And I'm sure that that uh, probably created a lot of opportunities, right? Again, looking uh, like a young boy again. Again, Whoa! So uh, you worship that God, and uh, your skin looks like that. That's probably a draw in itself. But it created opportunities for him to say, "Hey, this is uh, this is an idol I have for the God of Israel. Let me tell you about what He's done for me." And some people may have been moved by what he said. Others may be offended, and that's the true reality. That's the reality of the gospel that we believe, that the Bible teaches, and that we preach here in this church. It's offensive. And it's foolishness to the world. And it must be accepted freely in its simplicity and in its exclusivity through Christ alone. So we're going to kind of take an action today to remember that uh, as we celebrate communion together. So I want to invite the band to come up as we prepare and just before we take communion, I want to say that for us, this is for those of you who believe Jesus is your Lord. It doesn't mean that you've lived perfectly. It doesn't mean that you, uh, you know, have earned anything, right? It's just that you accept, hey, I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I want to get closer to him because communion is a great way to connect us to Christ, to draw us into him as he invites us to sit at his table. And so we're going to do this. We're going to be remembering what it is that we believe through this action of communion. Just as uh, we see Naaman had to take this action of going into the water We're taking this action of taking communion. It's something physical that we do, but it's what it represents and how it connects us to Christ that really gives it its power. It reminds us it shows us, it paints us the picture that there is a great price that had to be paid that we could not afford. I couldn't afford it. I could not. Your body broken, your blood spilled out is a price I cannot pay. It reminds us of the grand gesture, the grand quest that had to be done. He had to go down into the depths of death itself to defeat it for us. And this grand gesture had to be done and it's one we could not perform. And it reminds us that there is only one who's done this. There's only one that can clean us and cleanse us completely and it is Christ Jesus and him alone. So today uh, with our kind of uh, current uh, hygiene restrictions, the way we're going to do this is right now uh, the ushers can begin to pass out the elements uh, and I encourage you to take one Uh, hold on to it. Don't take it just yet. And as they do, the band's going to play right now and we're going to just, as they pass them out, we're going to still just kind of take this time also to take a few minutes and I want to encourage you to pray. Whatever is on your heart at the forefront that you need to pray right now, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's repenting of a sin, confessing a sin to God. Maybe it's laying down a burden. God, I'm stressed. I'm struggling with this and I want to lay it down before I come and sit at your table and commune with you in the body of Christ. So I encourage you to just take a couple minutes right now to pray those prayers, and then we will take communion together.